Well, nothing like starting off a brand new episode of Oscar Race Checkpoint from Mike, Mike, and Oscar with the big warning sound and dealing with breaking news. And that's exactly what we have today. Uh, hi, guys. Mike One here from the editing bay. Just wanted to hop on and set the record straight. So there was a lot of debate uh, before Mike and I hit record in this episode as to what we should do with our Hamilton review, how do we want to handle it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we decided... Mike would give a quick review since he was the one. Also, Mike would give a quick review since he was the one that watched it. Uh, and then the majority of our conversation would be based around if it is Oscars eligible, if it's not. We land on a conclusion saying that it is. I was on the record, and you'll hear me say it. I know I had read somewhere that it's not Oscars eligible. So we kind of have this back and forth conversation around its Oscars eligibility. And it's a fun conversation that I think still holds up because we can talk about a world in which Hamilton on Disney Plus remains Oscars eligible or is Oscars eligible. And we talk about what it would mean for Broadway and do the Tonys want it to be Oscars eligible, uh, what it can do for other Broadway shows if it did have success at the Oscars, et cetera, et cetera. So while that conversation is good, Mark Malkin from Variety posted an article while I was editing after we had recorded this episode, and the title of his of it is Why Hamilton Can't Win Any Oscars. And he goes on to talk about how the Academy adopted a rule change in 1997 that said any recorded stage performance is ineligible for other categories. And that's why the last time this happened was uh, in 1976 with a one-man stage play with James Whitmore from Give Him Hell Harry. This is all from Mark Malkin's article uh, and we referenced the the Whitmore performance at some point in this episode as well. So that thankfully closes that chapter and provides some definitive clarity. Hamilton is not going to be eligible for the Academy Awards this upcoming year. That did not seem to be the case as of a couple hours ago uh, when we were recording this episode, even though I know I had heard previously and I just got to trust my gut sometimes and I didn't. Um, so it seemed like Hamilton was going to be eligible for the Oscars. Definitively, it is not eligible for the Oscars. With that said, this conversation was had before that word, uh, that clarity was provided. So listen to it more as a kind of exercise as to what could have happened had Hamilton been eligible. But a lot of the beats that we talk about in this discussion uh, surrounding Hamilton that Mike and I do to start off this episode for the first 20 minutes or so, uh, we stand by them. They, they still they still play. Uh, it, it's just that it, it's not going to play in reality because it's not an Oscar nominated or an Oscars eligible property. That's all. I knew it. I, I, I should have just stood by it. It's one of those things, even when I'm right, I, I approach it wrong. All right. Well, I'll learn to live with myself. You guys enjoy this episode. Tons of news other than Hamilton that does affect directly film festivals and Oscars 2021, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's an ORC. Let's get into it. Mike, Mike, and the We're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. An Oscar race checkpoint telling you the highs, lows, and all the in-betweens as we go full throttle to the biggest award season Hollywood has to offer. Whenever that may happen to be <laughs> this year in the middle of a global pandemic. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. So this past weekend, the July 4th weekend, could have been the most important Oscar week of the year, or it could have been the least important Oscar <laughs> week of the year. We don't know yet, but that is essentially the jumping off point for this episode and for the, you know, the need to have an orc today because Hamilton hit and my God, am I tempted to sing some of the songs because I've been listening to them all weekend. <laughs> I will not do that out of reverence for this amazing movie, this amazing play, but it did hit Disney plus and my goodness, it seemed like everybody watched it this past weekend. Oh, did Hamilton come out? I didn't notice. Yeah, uh, everyone on social media made sure to make note that Hamilton did in fact drop, and Disney, being the masters of marketers they are, made sure they got it out there for the July 4th weekend, and uh, it did consume the zeitgeist for certain this weekend. Everyone and their mother was watching it, and so that brings up the question, one, uh, we should review it to see how it was. Uh, two, is it an Oscars 
thing, because I don't know if we can call this really a movie, but we're going to try to address both those questions on the start here of the Oscar Race Checkpoint. This is an Oscar Race Checkpoint in ORC, where we focus mainly on award season and Oscar-centric news only. If you're looking for more of the blockbustery type news uh, and all stories that cover the blockbustery type news, I should say, that will be coming in MMO Weekly, our other news show that we do pretty much weekly. So, Michael, you did watch Hamilton. I did not, because I'm a miserable, miserable old man. Uh, how was it? Give us a quick review and a rundown here. Of course it's excellent. And Mike, you're in for a treat. I know you don't like popular things for some reason, <laughs> and you think like the Oscars are like some, you know, rebellious uh, rebellion. I can't come up with words. A rebellious episode. rebellion. It's a rebellious yes. rebellion. And I don't understand why, of all things, you would avoid Hamilton. Like, Hamilton is right up your alley. I mean, it's so gosh darn progressive. It's so much fun. I mean, you like musicals more than me. You've seen more musicals than I have. This makes zero sense to me while you would uh, shy away from just, you know, consuming this immediately. I don't like people, Mike. I don't like people. And people talked about this. And so I didn't like it. People were uh, happy, and you were mad that they were happy, is what you're saying? I'm happy they were happy, but there was more going on this weekend than Hamilton. But you wouldn't know that if you go by certain right. uh, outlets. Okay, so let's stop that line of questioning immediately, <laughs> and let me get into my review, because of course it was excellent. The music is so addictive. I mean, I think I've had it on like four times. I've watched it you know, oh, wall to wall twice, but I've just been, you know, I want this in the background and it plays both ways. You can have it just consume you and the laptop is shut or you can have it on in the background of the laptop while you're doing work. I mean, there are like 40 something songs, 46 songs in this. 10 might be the most catchiest thing you, you ever heard. And hmm. I mean, there's just density to the singing of this history too, because it's based on this 36 hour history book essentially by Chernow. I think it's perhaps the highest degree of difficulty I've ever seen in an adaptation to take 36 wow. hours and bring it down to three hours. So, I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda is an absolute genius. Unequivocally, he is a genius for pulling this off, never mind making it the Broadway event of a generation, if not, like, ever. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly synonymous. I, I imagine as big as Cats ever was... When cat, you think of cats and you think of Broadway, I think Hamilton might have replaced that. This thing has just been a storm for like the better part of a decade now. Well, it won awards in 2016, so you mm-hmm. you would think it's a decade, but really it came out in 2015. It's a half a decade, half a and decade. It, Jesus. it's 2020, so you'd think this is more of a mainstay. And judging by how Broadway has treated its adaptations, it takes Cats how many years, how many decades before it gets a feature film? It takes Les Misérables, the musical, how many decades before it gets a feature film? Wicked is not getting one until it makes money on Broadway for 15, 20 years. So Hamilton made its fortune. I think we covered it a few weeks back where something upwards of six fifty, seven hundred million, at least online that we found as a as a gross for the Broadway play and the tour, etc. Never mind the merchandising that it made and then what it sold to Disney for. So this movie is probably closing in on a billion dollars profit. And I don't think this coming out on Disney is necessarily going to prohibit it from selling out on Broadway in the future. Like people are still going to want to see Hamilton when they go to New York because it's going to be that much more powerful when they see it person and they know this. The familiarity I don't think is going to ruin it is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that's probably a good point. I think it's also wise of Disney to continue to uh, keep Lin-Manuel Miranda in the family like they have. I mean, he was obviously part of the Mary Poppins sequel. Now they're they're basically curating this Hamilton film or at least uh, distributing it on their streaming service. I think it's wise of them to keep him happy because he does lend himself and his talents easily to family-friendly entertainment, which is what Disney obviously uh, is known for. Uh, I think all of that is very wise. We're not going to do a complete rundown and a complete OSP or a complete review. There's a billion outlets that are giving it this the Hamilton the entire review treatment. We're concentrating more so on the awards aspect of Hamilton, uh, especially for this episode. So the biggest question that came out of Hamilton dropping on Disney Plus this weekend, is this an Oscars film, Michael? 
So the big question is the eligibility. And right. I guess let's start off with what we know Hamilton is not eligible for. It is not eligible for best original score. It is not eligible for best original song. If it were, we would have had five Hamilton songs in this right. category. And that's, <laughs> that is not an exaggeration. It'd be the first time that that's happened, but it would have happened. I don't think it's eligible for adaptive screenplay or costumes based on similar technicalities essentially what was created for this uh filmed play was not created for the film it was created for the play so therefore it's not eligible circuit breaker will mavity at next best picture there, there's some differing opinions out there between award circuit next best picture some of our friends but i i think where i land and how i interpret it is that it's not eligible for some of the uh, undercard categories. So, yeah, it, you, you think it's not going to be eligible for some of the undercard categories. I could have sworn, you brought up Will Mavity uh, and the work that he did for Next Best Picture. I could have sworn I read that this wasn't going to be eligible for Oscars. And it's a really weird circumstance because this is a 2016 recording, right? This is um, fresh off the play when they did it in 2016. It's not a film adaptation, but there were certain scenes that were shot in different ways I was reading that lend itself more to film. So, you know, could cinematography be a category in which it's eligible for maybe, even though it's not a 2020 production or a 2019 production, but then does that really matter? Because obviously there's Oscars history with some international films that only made their way stateside after they had already debuted a couple years prior, so blah, blah. There's all these different technicalities and these really minutia points that are really combative with each other. I, like I said, I could have sworn that I read this wasn't eligible at all, and then I went back to try to find the article, and maybe I made it up in my head? I, I think, and what we're going to talk about now, I think this is eligible for most categories. Obviously, Will Mavity, who set me straight on Twitter when I said, I, I thought, sure, this wasn't eligible, he said it was, and that set me kind of down this spiral looking for any kind of proof to disprove that, and I can't find it. I guess it does seem eligible, at least for the major categories, at least for the categories you haven't said explicitly it can't be eligible for so far. And good luck to the Academy to explain how this yeah. one is not eligible at the end of the end of the day, because their rules seem to permit it. I, we had a theatrical release planned for Hamilton in October. Mm -hmm. It was created into a film. Uh, look, it doesn't matter when it debuted or if it debuted to an audience or not. I've seen that argument out there before. I, I disagree right. with it. I'm going to have an argument just based on it doesn't, you know, a feel argument, essentially, at the end of the day. But my my point here is that it should be eligible based on the rules and shame on the Academy for not having rules that prohibit this. I think they got to create new rules. Hopefully they do this before the OJ Made in America thing happens with this movie and it actually wins and, and is nominated and, uh, you know, the Academy is, is able to vote on it. But has this happened before? Well, yes, several different times. In 1965, Othello was filmed and got four nominations, including Dame Maggie Smith. In 1975, James Whitmore played Harry S. Truman in a one-man show. He was nominated for Best Actor. Then a year later, Ingmar Bergman filmed a play, The Magic Flute, and he filmed this for Swedish TV, but it actually got made into a film, and it got a costumes nod somehow, even though these costumes don't seem to be eligible. So, there's precedent, Mike. That that seems like the most damning case. If Ingmar Bergman did a, a filming of one of his plays that ended up on TV somewhere, even though it was a movie, that would seem to be the most synonymous with what's going on with this production of Hamilton this year. Uh, as far as just an apples-to-apples -apples comparative. I, I'm, I'm, we're not getting into the minutia of the, the real intricacies of whether or not it's eligible yet, but I think that probably lends itself to Hamilton being eligible, at least just based on precedent alone. It seems to be most similar to that. So is it a movie event, I guess, could be a thesis question for us going forward. I, I do think it's essentially turned out to be a TV event based on circumstances, and I know... It was supposed to premiere in the theaters, and I know that the streaming services are also, you know, putting quote-unquote movie events like The Five Bloods out on everybody's home TVs right now. Still, let's, let's call it what it is. It's a TV event for people at home. 
I wonder if uh, the Academy is going to be biased against that just going in and biased against Netflix, for that matter, going into this year's Academy Awards, like we've been saying all along, like Andrew's been saying to me uh, for a while as well. Yeah, if they are biased against Netflix, like or at least uh, reluctant or resistant towards Netflix because of Netflix not trying to basically ruin the uh, theatrical experience, <laughs> I can't see them openly embracing Hamilton in a regular year. This year, uh, God, with everything that's going on with 2020, this might be the perfect year for this to have happened. I mean, Disney is kind of saved by its having announced this was going to play in theaters. I think right. if they didn't do that, the, the Academy could have hung itself on that technicality and say there's no way it's even, we're even talking about this. But because Disney did have legitimate plans to roll this out under the new Academy guidelines for this year's Oscars only that we talked about in previous ORCs, whether the Academy will embrace it is one question, but that's, it's there for them to embrace this year, I think. Mike, if this movie did come out in theaters, it probably would have made a half a billion to a billion dollars. It would you have been a high, huh? humongous tentpole uh, j- just based on the popularity of this a- on Broadway. I mean, th- the exclusivity of how few people actually saw it on Broadway, even though it made a lot of money. I mean, it was the parasite of last year's <laughs> fall of musicals. <laughs> That's a good comparison, actually. And yeah, honestly, if this came out in movies, I probably would have been more likely to go and see it. Or if it came out in theaters, I should say. Uh, and I, I can't imagine I'm alone because it, it is. I mean, the theatrical experience is close to the Broadway experience. It's not exactly the same, obviously. But as far as that surround sound and you're you're st- sitting there watching someone perform on a stage in person, even though it would be on screen. I mean, that does That is a different viewing experience than viewing this just in your home, I would think. So you're probably right. Now, the next set of questions, because we're not going to be able to decide if it's eligible or not eligible right now. I mean, the Academy is going to make a decision. We'll report on it. It's going to be debated throughout uh, film Twitter. It's going to be debated for a while. Those debates are elsewhere better than you and I can do it right now. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about and speculate about if it's eligible, what should the Academy do? And then what will the Academy do? Because (laughs) this... This uh, play, this story, won all of the 2016 Tonys. So, I mean, it's one of those scenarios where uh, we have to get into our, you know, gut reactions now. And we have to get into what we believe is a film and isn't a film and should be up for Oscars and shouldn't be up for Oscars. Because if you're just basing this experience on its merits, it's going to get nominated for Best Picture, Actor, Supporting right. Actor, Supporting Actress, probably multiples in those other categories. If you're actually working with an academy that is weighing everything fairly. Now, I think you're going to have the, an academy that's not doing as much because you're going to have an academy saying that's not a movie. Mm-hmm. That's I don't want to vote for something that won all the Tonys. I don't want to vote for uh, something that won all of its awards for its medium. This is not its medium. This is a glorified PBS performances, as Eric Weber put it, or something. So th- I think you're going to open up a can of worms, a massive can of worms, if you just say as an academy, well, let's see what happens. Let's put it out there. Because then you're going to get this... All right, one branch voted it in, and then the other branch probably didn't, and a lot of people are prejudiced. And that's going to frustrate me because oh, Leslie Odom Jr. is great. A lot of other people are just as great, and why won't they all get nominated? Do you think the Tonys want this to be eligible for the Oscars? Because, like, half of me thinks if this one does well at the Oscars, if, let's say, it is eligible for mm. anything, and it does well, and it's a weird year, and it sweeps, and blah, blah, blah. Half of me thinks... The Tonys can take great pride in that, and look, Broadway can stand up to any kind of movie, and the live experience translates well on film, and blah, blah, blah. But the other half of me thinks, what the hell is the point of the Tonys if the Oscars are going to give recognition to this type of performance? Because the Oscars are going to be where everyone watches. So I think right now, the Tonys would be very happy, and Broadway at large would be very happy. Going forward, projecting it, this new trend of putting out a filmed play only four years after, you know, it started its run on Broadway or five years after its run. Yeah. Broadway is not going to be happy with that. That's and the Tonys are, And that's not sustainable for them. This is a phenomenon. This can't work for every single Broadway right. play that wins a Tony because you're just going to dilute 
and, and diminish your audience. Like Hamilton is so good that people will go and see it on Broadway despite being able to watch it at home for 15 bucks a month. And it's that reason that this is such a unique Broadway experience. I mean, this is Broadway right now. Uh, the, it's that reason that makes me think the Tonys would be totally fine and want Hamilton to do well at the Oscars because not only do not all Broadway film, or good Lord, the vocabulary that's going to go into dissecting whether Hamilton is Oscars eligible or not is going to tongue my tie my tongue in knots, tongue my tie in knots, <laughs> however that goes. But anyway... Not every Broadway play lends itself cinematically as much as Hamilton does A and B. It's not; It doesn't carry the recognition. No Broadway play has carried the recognition that Hamilton has thus far, except maybe something like Cats, like we talked about, in its heyday. It's the most successful Broadway play ever by the right. numbers. I've, I've been reading that all morning. But th- this movie could also contend for director cinematography, editing. I thought it was a beautiful job done by, by everybody involved there. Sound design maybe on the outskirts looking in. But, I mean, you have potentially 8 to 11 Oscar nominations and six actors might get in there potentially. <laughs> I mean, it's that good. These performances are that good. This could be an Oscars juggernaut. So I think the Academy's got to see this and they got to just nip it in the bud at some point. Should they nip it in the bud right now? Absolutely not. They should let this debate rage for months. They should yeah. let some precursor awards Agreed. show. Some voted in, some don't. We should be talking about this for six months Agreed. on the back burner, and that's good buzz for them because this is a happy story about a huge hit, and then they can decide whether to give it an honorary Oscar at the end of the day or to let it be nominated in all you know, uh, categories essentially, or most categories, like we said, because some it won't be eligible for. I think it should give it an honorary Oscar or 10. I think where <laughs> I land, this should be in its own category, but this own category cannot be invented yet because it's only happened a handful of times where a movie like this, a filmed play, has been in the awards conversation and never to this extent. We know it got, a few got nominated before, but in this category or that category, it never got a best picture favorite in the Academy's crosshairs before like it has now. And we've dealt with Broadway properties that did undergo cinematic adaptations. I mean, you can laugh all you want about Cats, but Cats got to that point. They had a fully cinematic display, and it was treated as an actual movie, special effects and all that that went into it. would, Would giving Hamilton all sorts of awards, if you did let it compete this year, prohibit that move from being done in the future would that just why would anyone want to see uh, a hamilton adaptation come to screen if we've already saw the best version of hamilton because it swept the oscars even though it was just the broadway play version of it that was just shot on a camera uh, there's uh, there is a bunch of questions i agree with your overall take though that the academy should keep their mouth shut and not say a word about this for a while even if they have to look like the bad guys at the 11th hour in a couple months i just i mean let let it talk let the let the debate about oscars go on I think it could be fun. Like, we could get into this nitty-gritty on this. And, and again, other people have already. But I do think it's going to be fascinating to watch the, how the critics' associations, then the precursors, handle Hamilton. It's it's going to be fun like to see Leslie Odom Jr. up against the Best Supporting Actor category, which is a wide-open category right now. That's what I was right going to say. If, if Delroy Lindo goes supporting and you have Leslie Odom Jr. against Delroy Lindo, that'd be awesome. I don't think he will go supporting Lindo, but I, I right. do think it right. could be interesting if you know Odom Jr. is like the runaway in Supporting sure. Actor in a wide-open category, and then you have... Well, if he's the runaway, then why aren't they winning these other three? Because these other three actors are as good as anything ever, too. And why isn't it winning Best Picture? Because it's probably the best piece of entertainment put out this year, never mind the best filmed entertainment. So I I think if people are going to vote for this thing, they should vote for it. I mean, that's what, at the end of the day, that's what I want to see. Like, I would be upset if the, if the movie got, like, four nominations just because of politicking and strife in the Academy. Because that would just put a damper on the whole thing and we'd all be annoyed i would like to see them give this movie some clarity put it in a category or not and and let people know i like the honorary oscars idea uh i really really like that and it would also it would motivate other broadway shows to put their productions on film and see if there is a a way they can be awarded without necessarily having to compete for oscars or infringe on the tonys in any way shape or form I, i think I really like that that 
kind of compromise, and then you still leave the door open if there is to be a truly cinematic adaptation like there was for Les Mis or Cats or any of these other uh, Broadway plays that did reach that, that milestone. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of the Broadway business, but I do have a sneaking suspicion, or let's just say I have a dream for Broadway right now. Okay. I have a dream for Broadway where this actually works out for them going forward, and it works out in movie theaters. I mean, you always see that the this opera or that opera is showing at AMC or showing here and there. What if Broadway shows filmed with the right. original cast right. can become box office hits around the world yep. to the point where their original cast don't have to tour in order to, you know, make make money at the end of the day. Then Broadway can churn out so many more products, so many more plays. They can let the, the best ones play at the big theaters for a time, but they don't have to be beholden to their hits as much as they have been. They don't have to wait 20 years to, to adapt Cats. And Hamilton's new business model here may actually become a new revenue stream for Broadway and a huge new revenue stream for Broadway. Well, and Broadway may need a new revenue stream just... Uh, never mind in addition, but it may just need a new revenue stream. I mean, if this virus, if this pandemic has teeth going forward, there's a second or third wave, whatever, whatever. I mean, if we can adapt Broadway to be seen on films instead of in person where you have literal people breathing and, and having spittle going to the first couple roads like it's going to happen and nobody wants to do that during a pandemic anyway so that could be and that's exactly what I meant when I said Hamilton could motivate and open the door for other productions to do this because you could be finding a whole new way for Broadway to be seen uh, even if it is just theatrically I know it would take away somewhat because you can't escape you know the Broadway theater, theater experience I'm sure uh, holds special in a lot of people's hearts and a lot of Broadway patrons hearts and I'm sure you can't replicate that feeling one for one on the movie theater screen but it would still be a way for them to keep doing what they do best and keep them in business and keep them making money I agree. It might be like audiobooks and what audiobooks yeah. are to, you know, books, sure. essentially. Because, yeah, it hurts bookstores at the end of the day for a time. For, But at the same time, you know, you're able to just listen to a book wherever you're at. And I don't know. I think Broadway is going to have trouble regardless. I wonder if they sold original cast recordings on or to the streamers, let's just say. Is that going to diminish their business when people go to New York? You know, does do tourists not go and see Cats because they can watch the Cats the uh, the movie and Cats the well if they watch Cats the movie they definitely won't go see Cats <laughs> but if they watch the live cast recording that comes out on Netflix next year is are they not going to go see Cats I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, before we dive into more of the news and the film festival world that we're going to be talking about in this episode, we do have a bit of sad news that just broke earlier this morning on the 6th as we are recording this episode. Score master Ennio Morricone passed away at the age of 91 on Monday morning. Yeah, Morricone was a legend of the score, of the original score, and had been such a Hollywood mainstay that he was actually awarded an honorary Oscar in 2007 uh, for his work in film and music uh, before he procured his first competitive win nearly a decade later when he won the Best Original Score category for his work in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. The maestro, as he was known, accumulated another five Oscar noms spanning over the preceding four decades. Each time he was nominated in the Best Original Score category, he was done so for Days of Heaven in 79, The Mission and The Untouchables in 86 and 88, respectively, Bugsy in 92, and Molina in 2001. Yeah, Morricone leaves behind a career that accumulated an absolutely astonishing 520 credits as a composer and another 344 credits as a soundtrack contributor. Our uh, our thoughts, of course, are with his family and and uh, loved ones at this time, as uh, he was one of the best to truly ever do it. Absolutely, no question. Morricone, uh, while the most recent passing, he was by no means the only entertainment giant to leave us this week. We also send our best out to and remember the life and career work of each of Charlie Daniels and Carl Reiner, Titans in their own space as well. And also, uh, we need to just make mention of the absolute gut-wrenching loss of Broadway actor and Tony Nam, Nick Cordero, who succumbed to COVID complications after a long battle with the virus. Way too young. Yeah, a lot of awesome. a lot of bad news out there. Unfortunately, throughout these this past month, we lost a lot. We lost a lot of legends, and uh, the in memoriam segment's going to go on long and rightfully so this year. 
All right, Mike, we got some Academy news. There's no way to transition, but there's some cheerful stories here because the Academy invited 819 new members, surpassing its diversity goals, and they still promise more inclusion going forward. So this all comes from Pete Hammond's Deadline article before the holiday this past weekend. Invitations went out to 819 members. Mike just told you that. They have headline names like Aquafina, Lulu Wong, Yelitsa Aparicio, John David Washington, Florence Pugh, nice. Jennifer Salk of Amazon, Matt Reeves, Ryan Murphy, etc., etc. The list goes on. Uh, the important pieces of information here I thought were twofold. One's good and one's bad. The good first, the cross-section of diversity invitees. We know how important a focus diversity of inclusion has become to the Academy the past four years. And of these more than 800 names, Hammond cites, the Academy has proudly proclaimed that they come from 68 countries. Uh, 49% of these 800 plus names are international. 45% are woman and 36% are from underrepresented ethnic and racial backgrounds. Now you can squabble with some of the numbers, no doubt, such as why isn't it even closer to a 50, 50 split in terms of gender for invitees. Though, to be fair, the Academy did make sure to point out that filling out the gender portion of these uh, information cards was optional, and thus there was no mandate to tell you what gender you abide by, and therefore that could be responsible for some of the skewing of the gender numbers. And if your intent is to increase racial minority representation, why in a giant class of invitees are there less than 40% of them from underrepresented backgrounds? But regardless... Because the industry doesn't hire enough of them and haven't cultivated exactly. those careers to the point where they've been able to make hit movies and, and yeah, I mean... I mean, that's the obvious answer, and I, I didn't. I know you're asking a hypothetical question, but that's the obvious, unfortunate, effing answer of all this, and why we've been pissed off about it for all three years of our show. To to, to be quite honest, with all and of you hopefully now. this doing that helps the academy shine their own light on this issue. And if they didn't real, if members didn't realize that, and board members didn't realize that in the first place, they could say, "Oh shit, this is a huge problem. We don't have enough people in the of name and of note that that have done accomplished enough and given enough opportunities." to succeed in this business and we need to help work yeah. on that but regardless we should applaud the academy on these numbers uh but the bad so they invited 819 invitees that's less than the 842 invitations the academy sent out last year these classes should be getting bigger and have higher diversity shouldn't they i mean doesn't accepting a lowered bar this year make it easier to accept an even lower one next year and so on and so on and I understand the argument, yes, it could be called a nitpick to be concerned with 23 less invitees during a global pandemic. I guess there is some merit to that argument, but the foot should be on the gas now more than ever in terms of the Academy striving for gender and racial equality and inclusion. That's my take on this. I don't yeah. understand why they're going backwards in total invitee numbers. I don't know either. I, I wonder if it just has to do with the criteria in terms of who's eligible, who's right. not. And, you know, it might just come down to sheer logistics in that regard. I don't think with all these diversity and inclusion measures that they're trying to, you know, go down in numbers. I mean, they've been outspoken on trying to expand the membership because of how they were voting for, for the last decade. Right. So they're they're pretty honest and, and obvious about that fact to the point where they changed the rules so overall it's probably a good thing we'll still wait and see to, to what happens with it mike uh we did have one more story though because uh another branch was created so agents have become full-fledged academy members and can now vote for oscars i see no conflict of interest whatsoever <laughs> coming from this now scott feinberg wrote a great article and he basically encapsulated that debate which is it's kind of obvious, but he, he gave us some nuance here because, okay, the biases are clear, but the Academy is hypocritical because publicists have had their own Academy branch with full membership status for years as well. So how do you have publicists? Uh, so how do you have pub publicists? Fuck. Easy for you to say. So how do you have pu pubic hairs with their... <laughs> how do you have publicists with full membership status and not agents? because you have the same conflict of interest there. Well, I would say, look, I mean, actors are probably going to vote for their friends, and they're probably going to, you know, vote for their studios that they work for the most, and every branch probably has conflict of interest when they vote, and they have this voting block mentality when they vote. And, I, I, I mean, this is more transparent, and it's understandable. 
Well, it's more direct. Like, publicists and agents have a direct... Their wallets, their income is directly impacted by whether or not their clients win Oscars and get to the A-list. Well, if you're Jennifer Lawrence and you have a partnership with David O. Russell, let's say, I mean, you're going to vote for David O. Russell... I mean, I'm not saying she did that, but I'm just if it would behoove her to vote for David O. Russell in Best Director, because the next time, you know, she, yeah. he does a movie, he, you're going to make more money on it. I mean, it, right. It's, but that's again, also a personal conflict of interest. I don't think it's the, see, I, this is nuance. I don't think it's the same conflict of interest. I think a professional if you have a professional impact based on a personal relationship, that's just happenstance. It's going to happen if you're in the you're going to meet people. Well, if you have it's a professional just causality, impact a pro- though. It's sure. Cause, it's cause sure. and effect. I mean, if sure, you but that, boost it, his career by with your vote and with the voting block from everybody in your movie who's sure. in the Academy, I mean, you could do this. I mean, I'm saying it can happen. I'm not saying it necessarily happens as much, or I don't know what happens. If we knew how the Academy vote, we wouldn't have a podcast. We'd have a best-selling <laughs> book that would make a lot of money and be a one-time endeavor, right? Wouldn't it make more sense... To give the uh, agents their own branch, give publicists their own branch, give people who are directly impacted professionally and financially in their vote their own branch and like do what the NBA does with the fan vote and just have them account for a certain percentage instead of giving them the full-fledged voting rights that everyone else has. Like take their votes into account, but have it be like, uh, you know, 50% towards whatever mixture with all the other branches that go in. You might just you might as well call it best achievement in box office then, because it doesn't. Yeah, you know, that's it doesn't fine. make sense. I mean, because everybody's going to vote for the money, whoever made them the most money, and whoever made the most people the most money is bottom line who they're going to vote for in that regard, or whoever has the potential of making the most people the most money. And maybe that's been again, maybe that's been something that has been a factor in the Academy's voting all along, which is why we get some of the same old shit getting picked decade <laughs> after decade, year after year. Right. So I don't think this is anything new necessarily. No, I don't either. I think David Rubin has a lot to clean up here, though. <laughs> Probably. It sounds that way. And uh, not that we'll ever know how these people vote, because why would we? You know, that's not important. <laughs> but I think if that ever does get leaked somehow, uh, that's where you'll start to see repercussions for all this stuff. But anyway, we do have some other uh, award season news and award show news, and we commented on the Oscars moving, the Golden Globes moving, and now we have the SAGs as well. They are moving their show from January to March. So this year's film calendar and this year's awards calendar is much more spread out than last year. I just want to give you guys a couple quick examples. This year's BAFTAs are two weeks before this year's Oscars. Last year was only a week. This year's SAGs are six weeks early. Last year was two weeks. This year's Critics' Choice are eight weeks early. Last year was a month, four weeks. And last year's Golden Globes were five weeks early. This year, it's nine weeks. So by moving everything to April, I think all these precursors are trying to find dates that work for them, that will play for them when they're broadcast, that will play with the TV stations that are connected to them. They have a lot more time. This is going to be a drawn-out award season. We are going to have 731 Oscar Race Checkpoint episodes during this span, Michael. <laughs> I kind of like the truncated, uh, the, the the sprint, if you will. Boy, yeah, some, last some, year was quite the sprint compared to this year. Some should really come up and just coin that. But uh, I, I really like that, how you... Because it doesn't give you a lot of time to think. And I guess, you know, you're dealing more with the deadlines anyway. The voting deadlines matter far more than the award show dates. So we'll see how those shake out to be when we get closer to them. But I kind of like that one show can so clearly impact the way they thought about that voting body thought about the next show and was able to, I mean, we were able to come up with the idea that Parasite is a legitimate contender before going into Oscars. It was over once the best director category at the Oscars was read by Spike Lee. We all knew then Parasite was going to win best picture, much to certain people names Mike Chagrin. But I, I kind of like that having that so close together now with it being more spread out, uh, I'm going to change my picks probably 350 times. Yeah, I think last year was fun because it was somewhat unpredictable, at least in some of the big categories. I wonder if by spreading it out, you're just going to have a crowning ceremony at the end of the day and the predictability is going to be at an all-time high. That's That would be my biggest fear for letting this just play and let consensus build for as long as they seem they're going to do that this year. 
Yeah, I guess the counter to that, though, would be, have you been able to predict anything that's happened in 2020 so far? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, Mike, the Broadway uh, news doesn't stop because Broadway will now remain closed for the rest of the year. So I, I kind of touched on my issue with Broadway being open, but I, I guess what's really the difference, if we're talking about the patrons of the Broadway theater now, what's really the difference between sitting in a Broadway theater and sitting in a movie theater? And how Tuxedos. Would, yeah, right. How would this <laughs> not be a harbinger of things to come for the film industry? I'm, I'm willing to listen to reasons otherwise, but I would think that the reason they want to stay closed is more to abide by social distancing, more so than they're concerned the performers may spread and it may get into the, the crowd that way and blah, blah, blah. I would think they just want to keep everyone separate, so why bother opening the doors at all in my opinion it's about money broadway needs a full house two or three times a day in one theater to be profitable to barely be profitable in some cases and it has to have a long ass run to then be profitable and make back sometimes the tens of million dollars that go into staging a major play i mean yes bial stock and bloom were, were able to make more from a flop than a hit but i think that's fiction folks i think <laughs> broadway theaters to get that prime real estate you really need to fill every seat in that theater i don't think you can have reduced capacity and make a profit maybe you can hold water for some of the monstrous hits but i just don't see it in terms of movie theaters the plan was to spread out the big crowds to different times of the day to different theaters like if tenant were to premiere this weekend let's say they would have every single amc theater at my local amc all 20 something screens playing tenant throughout the day maybe you have one screen that's staggered times yeah yeah and that would hopefully spread out the audience to n- enough to make some money i do i think you'll make as much money as you would with a typical friday night crowd or a saturday night crowd no but bottom line is they might be profitable. I don't think there's any way for Broadway to be profitable right now in, in terms of you know, social distance. It, you know, if you had a third capacity, they're not making money. I think Done. the tourism aspect comes into play here, too. Uh, New York's Governor Cuomo right. has been adamant lately about trying to keep people from out of state, out of New York, and out of the tri-state area. Uh, us being from Connecticut, we can speak uh, directly to this. New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut's governors have kind of been working in concert yeah. throughout this COVID pandemic. Uh, and when things were at their worst for these three states, we wanted to keep everyone in. And we wanted to you know, keep our patrons in and keep them from spreading the virus to other parts of the country. And now that the tri-state area has it under control and there's so many other areas of the country that are out of control that's been a concentrated effort by the governors to keep people you know outsiders and people from other states from coming in to this area to kind of reinvigorate the virus so i'm sure that has something to do with it too if broadway is obviously a tourist trap and a big touristy spot so if that's closed you can't really run the risk of uh having someone from say florida fly up to come see say hamilton for example. <laughs> but all right, that's the Broadway section of this Oscars podcast talking about a Broadway play that was done on film and shown on a movie theater, but it was in your home on TV. Got it? Good. We'll have some film festival news here now, Mike. Yeah, let's start with San Sebastian because they incorporated much of the 2020 Cannes films, this new selection from Cannes. Plus a few more, though, Mike. So this comes from The Hollywood Reporter. The San Sebastian has picked the six films thus far with more to come, but warnings that while the festival will be in, quote, recognizable format, whatever that means, there's going to be 30% less screenings than in previous years for the festival. And it does sound like San, San Sebastian's having some sort of physical film festival, some in-person festival of some kind, but they've also made it known that both canceling the event outright or going forward with what they call a standard edition of the festival are both out of the question as far as this year goes. Again, in terms of a bottom line, I think that's probably true for every one of these fall festivals yeah. at this point, maybe except Cannes, who's been around the longest, and then they at least have the name and you know, they're, they can probably survive in terms of the, the rest of this, at least especially the small film festivals. They're going to have problems closing their doors, not making profit for a year. I mean, this is the story of the pandemic right now. But, Mike, I don't think this is rocket science. I've been thinking about this all day, all month, all, you know, the last six months, let's just say. I, I don't think film festivals need to lose as much money as they're losing. I think if they kept the main thing, the main thing 
fostering film love by getting eyes on movies early. Obviously, there's much more going on, but you need X amount of eyes and the right eyes on these products to help them sell, to help discourse happen, to help awards buzz build, to have to help the industry. Keep the main thing the main thing. Allow the press, allow buyers, allow some of the dedicated fans and festival-going audience members to see these movies. Put whatever cap you want on the premium virtual viewings. Put whatever price you want on the premium virtual viewings and the screenings. Make them appointment viewings if you want. Make them exclusive events. Have drawings. Have contests. Do whatever you want to do to get Buzz going. I feel like they are missing major opportunities to use virtual cinema right now to create fans for life that would have never thought of going to a festival in the first place. If I were able to watch this year's Parasite on Sundance.com using AMC, uh, their streaming service, let's just say. I just think they're missing a huge opportunity to just get that fan to be a fan of Sundance for life or whatever you want to talk about uh, in terms of whatever festival you're talking about. Yeah, look, your lips to God's ears, you put it quite you articulated it very eloquently, I think. This is also something that I've been pounding the table over in previous... Where is the innovation? Where is the film festival that's going to step up and wholly embrace what streaming has to offer, what YouTube has to offer, fully embrace what can what is possible going virtual? I'm with you there. I'm with you all the way. And maybe Sundance will be the first film festival that actually does that because that's our next story here. They are planning a virtual component. They also say they're planning something different on top of it for 2021. Obviously, this could be a bigger story as we get nearer to it, but we have also talked here on MMO about the possibility of Sundance being the new TIFF or being this big send-off into the Oscars because of the new Academy schedule. Tabitha Jackson, who's the Sundance director, she came out Monday of last week and she put forth the changes we can all expect and also, in the meantime, kind of stopped the idea that we had thought possible as far as this being the big send-off and the big film festival that everyone goes to uh, this upcoming January, Dead in Its Tracks. The two big changes that Sundance is going to undergo. First of all, the festival will take place in Utah, as it always has, as well as a minimum of 20 other independent slash community cinemas across the U.S. and beyond. And she goes on to say that this could go as far uh, north as New York City and south as Mexico City, as far as conversations and and audience interaction and whatever. The second of the biggest changes, and obviously this one kind of, it seems apparent, if you're going to have this spread out Sundance, you need to have a virtual home, and that is going to be the second big change. There's going to be a virtual hub that will be the home of Sundance Online, and Jackson used a ton of business buzzwords when describing what this hub will be, but the sense that I got from it when reading uh, her words is that Sundance may be the first major film festival to stretch the limits of what's possible and available online, and obviously, like we were just talking about, this is what is most fascinating to me anyway so i have a lot of takeaways from this but this Mm -hmm. is why my dream is not possible because essentially the film festivals are trying to promote a live event for the future they are a live event and if you go online you risk losing your business model let's just say in a way yeah certainly you risk it you risk it there's no question about it can you make up your profits in one year if you sell to Amazon and you sell X amount of uh, premium virtual screening tickets for Ammonite at $100 a piece, which I would pay, or $50 a piece, which I, which I would pay for that movie, never mind all these other movies I want to see. I would watch archaeologists, fossil hunters, have sex <laughs> For a hundred dollars, that came out wrong. But that's the truth. I feel like I, we should, yeah, clean that up. Uh, we know Ammonite is about archaeologists, and there is a sexual aspect to the movie. That's just not Mike going off the cuff there. Mike, I would watch any of these Oscar buzzworthy films for a premium, the price of a premium ticket, and I would be patient enough or understandable enough to know that I probably wouldn't, you know, be able to get in line or get tickets to see every single one of them. And that, that's just me as a fan. You know, let the press see it early uh, to a certain extent. Make it as exclusive as you want. 
I don't care. Which is possible, you, but you're, you can you're find saying, the numbers to work for you. Yeah, is what they're I'm they're losing the destination aspect of their film festival if they do commit totally to going virtual. Which, yeah, obviously, but there is a chance that they're by doing so and by spreading your innovative wings and seeing what's possible out there on streaming, you could maybe not double your revenue, but you could do a huge debt. It would hurt the community more so than anything. It would hurt the the logistics that go into a film festival, like the surrounding hotels and restaurants and bars. Yeah. That's where the impact would certainly be felt greatest. But they're Sundance a, themselves could certainly make more revenue. They're taking a one-year loss to maintain their business model, bottom line, because they want people to go to Sundance. They don't want to have to do what you say shouldn't be done in terms of business once you give somebody something it's hard to take it back right so once you give them a virtual component of the of the film festival circuit it's hard to take that back the next year and expect your business to be saved because somebody else will probably fill that market they'll fill that void they'll fill that supply for the built-in demand that you create I think I think that's an economic uh, principle, <laughs> and I think that works. So my dream of this doesn't necessarily seem to make sense. I'm guessing that's what they've been weighing all along because they know their business inside and out. Will they create enough fans with a vir virtual festival? I mean, look, it didn't work for South by Southwest. It didn't work for Tribeca and the We Are One Festival at all. I don't. And think. they had no appeal. Yeah, I mean, they, that right. was kind of slopped together at the last... I don't want to say slopped together, and I just did, but that was done in a rushed way because they you didn't were up have the, the goods you right. didn't have the goods you did you had one really cool documentary about johnny cash's right. wife and his family all right you didn't have the goods that we are one you had some animated shorts that were fun you had a couple movies that were cool and maybe you discovered a new filmmaker here or there if you're a film junkie and a film nut like we are you didn't have a major awards contender which is the major allure to these festivals yes yeah, didn't have I agree. Um, we'll see what happens with Sundance and if they can pull that off. But there's a film festival, not as big as Sundance, that comes before Sundance, that is relevant, that is seemingly committing to going wholly virtual. And it's the London Film Festival. We'll see if Sundance can learn anything from Lon London's virtual component because London Film Festival is going to run from October 7th through the 18th. They're still planning 50 premieres and have sectioned off debut and premiere times for their for the film's start online. So it's sounding a bit like they're approaching the virtual aspect as we've theorized the film festival should. You buy a ticket, you get in front of your computer for a certain screen time, and if you miss it, you're SOL. I think we both agree that's probably how these should go, uh, regardless of the surrounding economic impact like we just talked about. Most curious may be the quality or level of film London does get to agree to be shown this way. Now, clearly, they already have a number of movies locked in, as they've already promised to debut 50 films at the festival. But also, they're going to have to keep tabs on, obviously, revenue. They're going to have to keep tabs on piracy and spoilers. And these are all things, different aspects that we're going to have to be aware of as a result of London Film Festival actually fully embracing the virtual aspect and the online aspect of their film festival. And London is known for having big names. Last year, they had David Copperfield. Uh, they had Knives Out. They had The Irishman. They had The Aeronauts. So like you said, the online film festivals we've had so far lacked the allure so far in 2020. Will London get those big names? And if so, what's that going to do since they are seemingly going wholly virtual? So, of course, I should love this idea, but I don't because I won't be able to watch it. I mean, this is only going to be watchable for people in London, apparently, and then perhaps some press. But most of the film press right now, they're unsure if they're going to be able to buy tickets to this because the exclusivity is going to be geographically based, I guess. And you're right, the piracy, the, the, these are all worries. But again, I say, use AMC's service. You know, use yeah. Bowtie Cinema's virtual cinema, use Kino Lorber, use all these, you know, places where we've been watching, you know, movies on our TVs on these apps. You know, you could use these to be able to uh, pr promote your festival to people who would not necessarily have been festival cognizant in the past. Film lovers out there who are never thought 
they would be able to see festival movies early and would never thought they had the option to see those uh, in terms of a, a premium ticket price. Like, uh, what pr- ticket price would work for AMC.com, the studio, and the festival where they all can make 10 bucks on a ticket or whatever they have to make to break even or make profit, right? What do you got to pay? 45, 50 bucks? I mean, by the, I mean, New York Film Festival, you're paying like, you know, 28, $38 a ticket, whatever that is, depending where you want to sit, right? So, I don't know. I just I th- I'm willing to pay that premium. I think fans are willing to pay that premium. You can limit the number of fans. Somebody's got to do this the yeah, way I, I want them to do it. And you can blame me and I, <laughs> if it doesn't work. I think you're speaking a lot of sense from the movie aspect. I am sure the local government aspect, the local economy aspect, plays a lot into this as to why these major film festivals haven't wholly committed to this right. idea because they're going to have to see these owners. I mean, a place like Sundance has to be a restaurant in Sundance in Utah has to be reliant on the tourism industry. I agree. But at the same time, you know, but at the same time, if you think back to Halloween 1978, if you think back to uh, the way movies used to platform release, they used to go on tour, Mike, right. to a couple big cities and they used to start this grassroots campaign with each and every film. And if it played well, then it played in more spots. If it played well at one college, I mean, we've heard tales of, of movies that, that played at one college and was a hit there, and then word of mouth went wild. Can you imagine if 5,000 people saw Ammonite and it's the greatest movie of the year, and then <laughs> what would happen from there? It would spread like corona. I'm with you. I, 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 I hope this is what happens, and I would love to see that happen, obviously. I don't know. I just they're weighing financial implications, like you're saying, and financial implications for the people who back them mm-hmm. at, the, at the end of the day. And they're backed by these 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 industries that are local. I get it. I just wish there was a way to make them whole. Like you can make you can bring AMC in as a new backer and use their streaming service, which sure. is already ready built. Uh, maybe that works, but they got to come up with different business partners. And look, what we're that, saying is yeah. call us and we'll figure it out for you. We will figure it out in one 30-minute period where we prep for this segment of this podcast. We have figured it out, so we're ready. <laughs> Mike, we have the Can Marche that just finished. Uh, we had some Terrible. record deals. <laughs> Terrible transition. We had some record deals, uh, but it was declared a success, though a qualified one. All right, so you and Andrew mentioned, uh, as we wrap up with the last couple stories here about uh, potential Oscar-contending films, Apple had bought the Will Smith-Antoine Fuqua film Emancipation in our last episode on the MMO feed. It sold at the Cannes market for a record of $120 million. So uh, first things first, congratulations to this film and everyone involved in it for sweeping the big six categories and whatever Oscars it becomes eligible for, because this is going to be a serious contender, obviously. Uh, this sounds like a huge deal. Will Smith, Antoine Fuqua, uh, obviously the the ra- race relations and the the protests that are going on right now in the name of George Floyd and equality and racial equality. Sounds like a big deal to me. Mike Fleming Jr. of Deadline agrees. He had all the details of this purchase. This is a script that is based on the famous scourged back photo, which was published in The Independent in the 1860s. Will Smith is going to star as the main character from the photo, portraying the runaway slave Peter, who becomes a Union soldier. Just an unbelievable seminal moment in our history, you know, if you you research this story. And it's going to be one of those just most important films to see because it's harkening back to a time when uh, my god people didn't know they didn't understand what was happening mm-hmm. at all and they realized from a photo like that and they realized from the story that was told what was happening yeah just the actual horrors of slavery the internet wasn't around in the 1860s people uh Fuqua, for his part, hasn't directed a fictional feature film since The Equalizer 2. He's done a couple of documentaries since, including the well-reviewed Muhammad Ali, What's My Name one. Excellent. He's currently working on finishing the sci-fi action movie Infinite, which sounds kind of like Tenet, according to the IMTB synopsis. A man discovers that his hallucinations are actually visions from past lives. Sure. Explain to me how that's not Tenet right now. Perhaps. <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea what Tenet is. <laughs> Will Smith, for his part, 
He's still Oscar hunting, as he has been since 2015's concussion. His path these past five years have been filmed with potential spinoff franchises, such as his role in Suicide Squad, roles in boundary-pushing blockbusters like Gemini Man and Aladdin, and outright Oscar grabs such as the aforementioned concussion and collateral beauty. Yeah, he, he's been balanced. I mean, he's obviously not Oscar hunting with Aladdin, and he's obviously not Oscar hunting with... Suicide Squad, you know. It could be somewhat of a mulligan for Smith, too, as he infamously turned down the chance to play protagonist runaway slave turned ass-kicking hero Django for Quentin Tarantino, feeling as though the role wasn't the lead for the movie, and instead opting to do After Earth with son Jaden Smith for director M. Night Shyamalan. I don't necessarily disagree with him about not being the lead in that movie. However, I disagree with his choice to follow <laughs> after Earth was awful. But yeah, I mean, Tarantino did give away that movie, I think, and it was my most per- frustrating scene of the film. Yes, I uh, agree there. We've reviewed that a couple times, as a matter of fact. Apple, for their part, paying the bill for this, they beat out a reported six other major studios, including WB, who is currently working with Smith on his current Oscars hope, King Richard, which had to halt production due to COVID. Emancipation was won by Apple for a bid of about $105 million gross, and which BlackFilm.com reports is going to exceed that $120 million tab once the buyouts of the contracts are factored in. It's believed to be one of, if not the largest can market bid ever for a film. And just to shine a light on Apple here and what they've done in a short order with their film library, here's what Apple has coming up and maybe netflix in search of their oscars can learn a lesson here emancipation killers of the flower moon greyhound those three we've talked about a lot so far on mmo sharper which is featuring julianne moore and swan song which was a sundance winner both of those are with the help of a24 they have on the rocks which is a sofia coppola latest they have the sky is everywhere which is from josephine decker and swan song which is a mahershala ali project all of those are coming out to apple tv plus that's exciting that's exciting that apple tv plus is throwing the big money that they are I guess it's good at the moment for for movie studios and and for these uh, smaller production companies that they're able to sell for such big dollars and get such big budgets from Apple. We know that Apple is flush with cash as well just because of the the rest of their business model. But they're probably doing well with those $5 subscriptions right now because of COVID. Mm. I think it's exciting for the streaming wars. Is it good for movie theaters? And of course not. (laughs) This is very alarming. We'll wrap up with the story of one more uh, potential Oscars contender of the future as Paramount also did some work in the Cannes film market and they purchased Lee Daniels' Billy Holiday film. This is great, Mike, because we just went through a whole MMOW segment like two weeks ago or whatever, and we had all these white people movies getting announced correct yeah just one after another and we were so goddamn frustrated because hollywood did nothing but spout the fact that they were going for inclusion we're going for this we're going for that and then when the money was going to be put on the table it went to white men again always fuck right (laughs) yes now we're starting to get stories about big name hollywood successes like Lee Daniels, like Will Smith, like Antoine Fuqua, who have track records that are selling for the big bucks. And this is necessary. This is important to commemorate for once. I mean, it's 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 refreshing. And yeah. I can't believe I'm saying that word here, but it is. And even if you were to be cynical, like I always am, and say that these are just major studios with the deepest pockets that are seizing on the moment and seeing how racial equality is such a hot-button topic, and so they're throwing money at it just to kind of hone in on that and trying to take advantage of the box office that these issues may present now versus when, if they were shown, say, like even just five or six years ago. It's still studios going to important filmmakers, going to important minority voices giving their resources to these as long as they let these directors actually tell their visions and their stories and they let these re, their resources be used by these directors to tell those visions and those stories there's still important stories that should be given these opportunities that's what matters most in the end i think i, I agree with you it, it is it is important and it should be commemorated for once and finally well hopefully it's something we could talk about much more of but at least at this point 
these this is some good news thank god yeah absolutely uh, paramount dishing out an eight-figure deal for this film susan laurie parks she who is one of the creators of the critically acclaimed nat geo series genius is the lone screenplay writer charged with adapting the johan hari novel for this billy holiday film to come uh, a lot of excitement and a lot of future oscar contenders that i think uh Hopefully, we'll be able to like see in a theater and not worry about pending doom someday. For I'm happy for that idea. I'm hopeful. Let's just say <laughs> I'm hopeful. Paramount has got new people in charge over there. They got some uh, Fox Searchlight people that moved over after Disney and uh, Bob Iger kind of talked shit about them all of last year. So you'll be happy to hear that as well. They found they land they found a landing spot. And they've had hits throughout their careers. Uh, and these are some smart buys, I would hope. Yeah, they, they, they seem, I mean, I don't think you can go wrong getting in business with Antoine Fuqua, getting in business with Lee Daniels. Yeah, these, these seem to be just contenders in waiting and important stories to be told in waiting. So uh, we want to hear from you, as always. Are you excited for either of those films as we are? Uh, what do you think about all the film festival news that we recapped as well? Did you watch Hamilton? Did you tweet about it? If so, I hate you. But you can tell us your thoughts about Hamilton anyway <laughs> and let us know what you thought about the breakdown as to whether or not it will be Oscars eligible and should it be Oscars eligible for that fact? Let us know your thoughts, comments, questions, opinions. I don't hate you. I love you. Thank you for listening, Get obviously. Get off Twitter. I can't believe I'm saying this to my co-host and partner who probably does so much more work than I do on social media, keeping us afloat, keeping our followers coming and growing, and now I'm yelling at you to get the hell off of social it's, media. It's, it's Just really, for your yeah. psyche It's not good. Point. It's not For good. your psyche, because you can't handle <laughs> things that are popular and people... Other people's happiness drives me crazy. Uh, I'll let you say it. (laughs) We do want to hear from you, dear listener. You can leave us those thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about any of those issues, as well as anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially Apple Podcasts. If you are still in quarantine or if you are commuting somewhere and you happen to be listening to us, we cannot thank you enough if you would be so kind as to go to the apple podcast app and leave us a five-star review that would truly make our day michael what are some words of wisdom and what is coming next from mmo well we're going to do mmow mmo weekly next i believe but you know we may switch that on you at the last second but right now we got a bunch of stuff we've been watching stuff to preview a couple trailers so that that'll be a fun midweek show and i think mmow will be in the midweek range over the next few weeks because we actually got some weekend movies to watch yeah who knows if uh saint maud will come out mid-month and we'll actually get that on vod too but first cow is going to be an a24 release on pvod which we're both excited to see we mm-hmm. haven't you know we've been hearing about that kelly reichardt movie for a long time it got jerked around its release date with quarantine so there is a first cow and you don't like horse movies will you like cow movies Remain in, in suspense, folks. Cause I relate this, this that is, to cows. This is everything. <laughs> but we're going to review Palm Springs at the end of the week. First Cal, probably the beginning of next week. And uh, we'll go from there. In terms of words of wisdom, just as always, just stay safe, people. Please. Stay safe and keep your loved ones safe because it's getting scary out there again. And, you know, we got we to gotta do our part. <laughs> yeah. Watch Hamilton, too, Mike. <laughs> you watch Hamilton and get happier. <laughs> Watch Eurovision, watch Hamilton. <laughs> what are you waiting for? You need to embrace the, the the desire to just have some happiness. I will watch more true crime things. <laughs> Guys! The next What We're Watching segment doesn't have Hamilton or Eurovision in it. I'm just going to berate you again. I'm just going to keep berating you. When reality, like my watching habits lately, suck... <laughs> You can come watch movies and share some laughs with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. <laughs>